coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Uh, you know, for a long time, even though my professor was the one who coined the word telemedicine, um, I've been trying for years to say, it's just medicine. Um, just call it medicine. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Pranos podcast. Once again, I'm Dr. Lim and together with me is my, as, as using his words, partner in crime, my co-host, Andrew Mastrindonis. Uh, Andrew, we have a very special guest with us today. Yeah? Yes, um, I'm going to do a very one or two line introduction and, and he can probably fill in the rest, but we have Dr. Jay Sanders, who I assume is somewhere in the DC area. Is that right? Correct. McLean, Virginia. Right. And, uh, Dr. Sanders is, I would say, internationally known as the father of telemedicine and has been working in this field for a few or more decades, I would say. And we wanted to talk to him today about telemedicine, uh, what happened during COVID, its history, where it's heading, because it's an area for us here in Asia that telemedicine is picking up, but it's not the same as it is in the West and in America. So we're very excited to have you here. We really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. No, thank uh, you. Can you tell us, I'm just really curious. I've read a bit of your background and I know you. Um, when did you, when was the very first time you got involved or had an inkling of telemedicine? Where did it start? Where was the root? Huh. Um, well, a lot of people are not going to believe this, but um, it goes back to the summer, late summer of 1967. Uh, when I was a senior resident in medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Wow. And in those days, those days, there was no uh, emergency medical specialty. So the medical senior resident and the surgical senior resident took uh, two 12-hour shifts running the emergency department. And this particular day, I was running the emergency department and all of a sudden the ER doors swung open wildly uh, and there standing in the door was my professor of medicine, Dr. Kenneth Bird. And he was red faced and he was sweating. Um, and um, I knew exactly why. Dr. Bird um, was moonlighting um, and he was medical director at Logan Airport Medical Station in Boston. Now, you need to know that Logan Airport Medical Station is only approximately three miles away from the Mass General. Um, but you also must realize that in those days, there was only a single tunnel going under the Charles River to Logan Airport, and the traffic was backed up for miles on both sides of the tunnel. And every day it took Dr. Bird about an hour to go each way to Logan Airport and back to the hospital. And once again, he'd gotten stuck under the Charles River in the tunnel. And here he was hot and sweating and looked upset. And he saw me because I was in the front of the ER waiting for the next traffic accident victim in Boston. And he came up to me and he grabbed my arm and he said, Jay. And I said, I know, Dr. Bird, I know you got caught in the tunnel again. 
And he said, yes, but I had this idea. What do you think about it? What if I buy two black and white, there was no color in those days, TV cameras, and I put one here at the MGH and one at Logan Airport, and I began to examine patients over telemedicine. What do you think? Now, remember, I was a resident. He was my professor. I thought it was the stupidest idea I'd ever heard of in my life. <laughs> but I had enough common sense to say, gee, Dr. Berg, that's a very interesting idea. And I've been working on his stupid idea ever since. Wow. Uh, was, it called, was it called telemedicine back then? Who coined that word? Well, it was actually Dr. Dr. Bird who coined the term. He said, you know, we shouldn't, we actually had a, uh, we initiated the system in 1969. We had gotten funding from the general director of the hospital, Dr. John Knowles at the time. We put in these two black and white TV cameras. There was no color. And he said, you know, we can't call this um, television medicine. Let's call it telemedicine. Wow. I mean, we, we could be underappreciating this moment, but this could very well be the first time ever in the history of mankind that someone actually mentioned, uh, you know, come up, coming up with this idea of having this video conferencing and, and practicing medicine over television and coining the term telemedicine. This could be that historical moment where telemedicine started in the world. Well, actually, then I started doing some research, and it turns out that um, in the state of Nebraska, they had actually had a similar system um, a few years earlier, um, looking at uh, both psychiatric patients and connecting them to a psychiatrist. And if I'm not mistaken, there also is a history of a um, radiologist who was reading bone x-rays, once again, the state of Nebraska. So we need to give them uh, huge credit. But the real sort of um, well-known system, at least in those days, was the one we had at, at the Mass General Hospital. And I do remember um, it was Dr. Bird who said, let's not call it television medicine, let's <laughs> call it telemedicine. Was, was this being done at all in any, anywhere else in the world at the time that you know of? Uh, basically, no. Okay. no. <laughs> is it the, the reason why they started using this system in Nebraska? Is it because of an accessibility issue, you know, because it's slightly more rural compared to, you know, the um, major urban populations area? Was that the inspiration? Absolutely. That's what you just said. And that is that it was rural and there was no available specialist. And... Um, what existed in Nebraska is 1950, in 1959 exists today in 2022. Wow. So in those very early years, in the, in the late 60s, what were the challenges you were facing as you started to develop it? Well, one was the fact that all we had was black and white. There, right. was, no col there was no color. But the fascinating thing was that the... Um, uh, the dermatologist, Dr. Thomas Fitzpatrick, who's very, very well known, used to, I don't think he's alive today, unfortunately, but he is the first author on many, many textbooks um, in dermatology. Um, he and then uh, the chair of the Department of uh, Pathology, Dr. Benjamin Castleman, who was the one who started the uh, 
CPCs in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, they very quickly adapted to the um, grayscale of, of the black and white TV. So they could tell if something was red, erythematous, simply by the intensity of the grayness. I actually took the first bone marrow specimen out to Logan Airport, and Dr. Benjamin Castleman, back at the Mass General, was able to read the bone marrow uh, specimen. Um, <laughs> one fascinating aspect, which um, <laughs> still amazes me, is the fact that um, there was one division chief, one department chairman at the Mass General who said, this will never, ever work in their specialty. And, and who is that? That was Dr. Thomas Fitzpatrick, who was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> so my professor, Dr. Bird, was a bit of a maverick, as you can tell. He challenged um, uh, the Department of Psychiatry and said, you know, I'm sure this will work uh, for mental health care. So we bought an additional TV camera and we put it out at a VA hospital um, in Bedford, Massachusetts. And now instead of the psychiatrists who used to physically travel to see their patients, they were now seeing them over TV. Three years after the initiation of the study, the whole department wrote a series of articles on the incredible effectiveness of telepsychiatry. Wow. And what, what they found was that while the psychiatrists initially felt that this cold mechanistic, this is the way they actually described it, this cold mechanistic technology could never ever reproduce the special ambience that existed between the psychiatrist or, and his or her patient in the room together, they actually found out that by using TV cameras, they could, for the, in the best way, manipulate the ambience in the same way a movie or TV director would tell you that the way we create the emotions of a scene is not simply the dialogue, not simply the facial expression, but how we shoot the scene. And what Dr. Dwyer found out was that when he was dealing with a patient um, who he really wanted to think about what he just told the patient, he would start moving his face into the camera <laughs> so that as the patient was watching him, his body became smaller, but his head just became the whole part of the screen. So to the patient, this was something that was coming from a much higher authority. <laughs> Godlike figure. Exactly. And when he felt that the patient was not ready to deal with the emotions of the moment, um, he moved himself back and miniaturized himself in the eyes of the patient. Wow. Today, today, of course, after teleradiology, the most frequent use of telemedicine is in mental health care. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting chills uh, just listening to these stories. This is like the, the very beginning and the roots of telemedicine and and how far has it came? Has it has it come today, right, Dr. Sanders? <laughs> well, you can see how old I am, how I can bring you this long history. Wow. <laughs> right, right. It, it's interesting. Um, even though telepsychiatry uh, or psychology has been around for a long time, it feels like using telemedicine for mental health has really only been commercialized in like the last maybe decade. Is that true? Well, um, in, in a big way. Respects, yeah, no, in many respects, I, I guess it is. Um, I can give you an example. Um, my wife, who's a psychologist, um, never did telemedicine until COVID hit. You know, I, right. I wish I had thought of starting a pandemic years ago. Um, um, now, um, her entire day is, um, doing, um, telemedicine, mental health care. Right. So I'm curious, take us then from the very early days in the sixties and how you and your profession kind of progressed in the next few decades. What happened after that in your career? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I wish I could say a lot, but I can't. Um, in 1973, so I went from uh, finishing as chief resident in medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital in 1969 um, to becoming assistant chief of medicine at the University of Miami um, in January of 1970. What a lot of people don't realize, while I, I hope I... Um, mentioned who the real father of telemedicine is, and it's not me, it's Dr. Ken Bird. I'm just a good student. Um, I am the father of uh, what something nobody knows about, and that is what is now in every department of medicine, at least in the United States, and that's called the Division of General Medicine. But I won't, I won't go into the background there. Maybe at another time, if anybody in the world is ever interested in that. But be that as it may, so I started uh, the first division of general medicine and was also assistant chief of medicine at the University of Miami, 1970. And in 1973, uh, I applied for a grant to the National Science Foundation, who all of a sudden became interested in telemedicine. Um, and I won a grant. I, I think I was one of about six people in the country who got a grant in telemedicine. Um, And I completed that study in uh, three years, wrote a four-volume report back to the National Science Foundation, looking at um, the quality of care, looking at the cost of care, looking at the technology, um, and looking at the psychiatric uh, aspect, both from the patient standpoint and from the professional um, physician and nurse. Uh, standpoint. I sent in those four volumes to the National Science Foundation and nothing happened. (laughs) (laughs) Except, interestingly enough, a lot of people don't know this, except for getting an invitation from the Shah of Iran and President and Mrs. Marcos of the Philippines. Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah, and being invited over 
uh, to their country. And I'll, I'll now tell you how incredibly naive I was as a business person. I was an <laughs> academician. Um, and the Shah, who a lot of people uh, probably don't know this, was a big gadgeteer. He loved all of the latest electronics. As a matter of fact, the major uh, planes in his Air Force were all the latest U.S. jets. Right. Uh, I think they were called Sabre jets um, in those days. And what a lot of people also don't know or may not want to admit is that guess who was servicing his jets? The Israelis. Really? Yes. And in exchange for uh, that, Iran gave oil to Israel. <laughs> Think, wow. about that. Think about that today. Okay. So, what, so what was your purpose of, why did they invite you there? Well, he wanted this latest technology. He, um, he was concerned about the health of his people, okay. um, which on one hand was excellent. However, remember, I was a naive academician in those days. And if I looked at what the needs of his people were in those days, if I drove 10 miles out of Tehran, I was in the 16th century. People wow. were living. People were literally living in mud huts. Wow! With their animals. Wow! And when they got up in the morning, they weren't asking, "Well, let's see, what am I going to have for breakfast?" They were asking, "What am I going to have to eat today?" Right. Um, and actually, if you walked in the streets of Tehran, there were areas where sewage was running along uh, the streets. Wow. So, and, and yeah, go ahead. Th- this was all before the, the whole Iranian revolution uh, where the Shah was ousted. And yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, wow. exactly. Um, so I naively, and I still think today I said the right thing. I said, um, Thank you very much for the opportunity, but I said you shouldn't spend your money, uh, your initial money on telemedicine. You should really spend it on much more basic like sanitation um, and and food for your population. And, well, I were you, the, and I left the country very quickly. Were you there as a private citizen or representing somebody? No, I was there as a private citizen as as a um, I was then 1976. I was I was professor of medicine at the University of Miami. So back then, you could have made a small fortune, perhaps. Yep. So that, well, that wasn't uh, the reason I went into academic medicine wasn't to earn uh, a small fortune. But right. I, I need to tell you who, apropos of what's happening today, where the son of uh, President Marcos yep. is now running for president. Yeah, I was about to mention that. Yeah, fun fact. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a guest for a week um, of President and Mrs. Marcos. And it was really Mrs. Marcos um, who was the then mayor of Metro Manila. And as you know, um, the Philippines is an archipelago uh, with the main island. 
um, having everything and the 7,000 external islands not having a lot. Right. And she, she very wisely, they even had um, uh, individual uh, institutes. So they had a cardiology institute in Metro Manila. And she wanted appropriately to bring, using telemedicine, to bring that expertise out to the outer islands. And by the way, they were still under martial law mm-hmm. uh, in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we have time, I'll tell you about when I arrived in the airport and the people came up and started measuring me. And I was immediately concerned they were measuring me for a coffin. Um, but <laughs> it turns out Mrs. Marcos was having the Barang Tugelag, which is the national shirt uh, in the Philippines, made for me. She made three of those shirts for me so I could attend their uh, their state dinners. Wow. Uh, that week that I was there. I, I still think I have those, I have those shirts. Uh, I also learned some fascinating history that most people in the United States don't still know about um, today. And that is that, um, do you know who was who very good friends with the Marcoses? No. Chairman Mao. Really? The last day I was there, um, President Marcos um, asked me if I would like to go to Corregidor and see some pictures of the Second World War. Remember that President Marcos became president because he was a hero in the Philippines from the Second World War. He led the resistance. Against the Japanese. He met MacArthur, okay? And I, of course, was a youngster in those days, and I used to, when I went to the movies, you would see the newsreel of pictures of the Second World War. So he said, would you like to go to Corregidor? And we went out on his, what he called his boat which was a ship. <laughs> and, and as we're leaving Metro Manila, uh, there was a, um, a search and rescue ship destroyer on our left, and there was a hospital ship on our right accompanying President Marco's ship. We went to Corregidor. I saw these films. We got back on the boat, um, and we were having, we were having dinner um, uh, on the deck when all of a sudden, um, President Marcos was sitting across from me, Imelda Marcos was sitting on my right, um, and he actually, and since I came by myself, he invited a guest for me, <laughs> who, who happened to be the president, she, of Chiquita Banana Corporation. Really? Okay? <laughs> and all of a sudden, his aide came up behind him as we were talking and bent over and whispered something in his ear and his face um, became uh, upset. Um, And he pushed his chair away and he said, you have to excuse me, Dr. Sanders, but I've just been informed, true story, that Chairman Mao has died. This was Uh. in September. September of 1976. Wow. And Mrs. Marcos grabbed my arm um, and she said, oh, 
how terrible. President Marcos went to the radio room to send a message of condolence. And Mrs. Marcos um, was very upset. And I, being a very naive American, um, said, I, I don't understand. Why are you so upset that the chairman of the country that is our enemy um, has died? And she said, oh, Jay, you don't understand. He was a wonderful man. Um, he was a philosopher. He was a poet, a great leader of his people. <laughs> and she said, we had many state visits together. She said, when you get home, I will send you some pictures of us together. I still have pictures of Chairman Mao in his, remember the, the peasant uniform, the gray cap, the gray um, jacket and pants. Right. Yep. With, with his arms around President and Mrs. Marco. Wow. <laughs> Interesting piece of history. Yeah. But well, once again, I was naive. And I, when I went, if I walked 600 yards out of Metro Manila, I was in the slums. Right. Um, so once again, I said, please use your initial efforts to improving the basic underpinnings of the healthcare delivery in your country and don't use telemedicine. And guess what? Both in the Iran and in the Philippines, I was a thousand percent wrong. Oh. And I learned my lesson in 1999 when, as a guest of uh, the province of Yunnan in China, to help a very small startup computer company develop telemedicine. And I will telescope the entire visit by going directly to the final day I was there when they had a dinner for me and the provincial governor of a woman came up to me with a very proud look on her face, extended her hand, we shook hands, and the first thing she said to me was, well, Dr. Sanders, what do you think about our telemedicine initiative? And I was about to say the same thing to her as I had said to the Shah and to President Mrs. Marcos because of what I saw in the rural communities in China. And by the way, when I got to the rural communities in China, the rural communities had a million people in a rural community. Right. And I found the same lack of infrastructure. So as I said to her, you know, I don't think this is the first step you should take with your funding. She looked at me, I'll never forget this. She looked at me, she said, Jay, I know it's not the first step we should take, but it is a step and it will act like a magnet and cause all the other necessary steps to happen. Wow. She was, I went there as a consultant, I came home as a student. Wow, that's fascinating. Wow, 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 wow. All these uh, bites of history that uh, 
I'm 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 really fortunate that that we are here with you today, Dr. Sanders, and 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 documenting all this because I really think many people, especially uh, doc, medical doctors and public health specialists in Malaysia, uh, are going to be very interested in this conversation. Uh, and just to kind of bring things back a bit towards the technical aspect, because I'm a physician, practicing physician myself. Like, you know, during medical school, we were always taught, uh, you know, when it comes to seeing a patient, it's always history taking and then followed by physical examination. And I believe this has been a dilemma in the field of telemedicine for ever since the beginning, maybe, right? So what, what's your take on, on this lack of ability of uh, physical examination when it comes to this practice of telemedicine? Because most authorities, even in Malaysia, are basically not so keen on deploying telemedicine because of this limitation or this little dilemma there. Yeah, fascinating question. Same question that I've gotten repeatedly um, here in the United States uh, as well. So uh, right, right on target. So let, let me telescope the things. After my, after my visit, um, to the Philippines um, in, uh, seven, in 1976, um, nothing happened for the next 15 years. I couldn't get anybody in the United States interested in telemedicine. Until 1993, uh, 1991, when I got a call from the governor of Georgia, who asked me to put in a statewide telemedicine system. I won't go through why, but it's very, very, well, I, I better actually go through why. Uh, after all this time of not hearing from anybody, um, I get this invitation from the governor of Georgia. And when we meet um, in October of 1991, he extends his hand to me, we shake hands. And he said, Dr. Sanders, I'm the governor of two states. And you can't be the governor of two states. <laughs> He said, yes, I'm the governor of Atlanta, big city in Georgia, and I'm the governor of the rest of the state. He said, we have everything we need from a healthcare delivery standpoint here in Atlanta, but the rest of Georgia is predominantly rural, and, and we don't have the medical expertise. And this, in was in the, this was in the 90s, right? 1991. Wow, that's not too long ago. No, no, it's not. And um, he said, and then he taught me something they never taught me in medical school. He taught me economics 101. <laughs> he, said, he said, Jay, what a lot of people don't understand um, is when the rural hospital bed census goes down because I can't bring a specialist out there so the patient has to be transferred to a secondary and tertiary care center. He said, when that bed census goes down, the hospital ends up closing. And we have lots of rural hospitals that are closing in the state of Georgia. He said, what most people don't understand is the major employer in rural communities is the hospital. Right. So when the rural community, when the rural hospital goes under within a three to five year period of time, the entire socioeconomic fabric of that community goes under. He said, I want telemedicine, not only for healthcare, but to sustain the economics of rural Atlanta. So what happened was, and this will bring you, we 
developed a 59-site totally networked system connecting three academic medical centers with nine comprehensive community hospitals, and in turn, those community hospitals were networked with rural hospitals, with public schools, with nursing homes, and with freestanding clinics throughout the state, 59 sites, totally networked, the first system anywhere. Um, and so the people from Arizona came to look at it, their legislature and their physicians, they duplicated the system. Then the state of California came, and now literally every state system in the U.S. is that. But one of the things that was a technological hurdle to us initially was exactly your question, Dr. Matt, and that is, how am I going to examine that patient? I might be able to look at the x-rays. I might be able to get a history, but how do I examine? Do I just rely upon the examination of the nurse or the primary care physician uh, out there? So we started to adapt our technology with our bioengineering division, and we were able to put a camera onto um, the otoscope or the ophthalmoscope, the gastroscope, the colonoscope. We wow. developed that. We developed that internally, and then we gave away the technology um, to a commercial company. <laughs> A lot of people would say naively, and I would probably agree. Probably should have uh, patented that first, right? Probably should have patented yeah. that first. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, that really became the start of being able over telemedicine to literally examine our patients at a distance. Of course, now, jumping ahead 20 plus years, we now here in the United States can go to Best Buy, um, a retail store and buy this technology over the counter for the home, which gets us into probably in my mind, the most important part of telemedicine today was an experiment we did in 1993. Now remember 1991, we had started this 59 site system by 1993. We were in all 59 sites, but it dawned on me, why am I waiting until the patient ends up in a hospital emergency department in their status asthmaticus or their acute pulmonary edema? Um, yes, I can now bring the cardiologist out there. I can now bring the pulmonologist out there, but I really need to have seen that patient long before they ended up in extremis. What if I could actually examine them in the home? Mm. In 1993, I received what is called an earmark from the federal government. I got a million dollars I had put in for a grant to try this new system of healthcare at home. Mm. And the Department of Defense saw what I was trying to do when they came down and they said, we would like to partner with you. We'll give you some additional money. Now, I remember this is 1993. Yeah, I just, want, I, I just wanted to point out that 
that was the era of uh, dial-up internet before broadband, before like date available data on our smartphones. This was before everything, and you guys were able to do that. That's like fascinating. Yeah. So, so what we did was, I went to the hospital, the university hospital administrator, and I said, "Who are your most, as I call them, revolving door patients? Who are the patients who are constantly being discharged and being really readmitted?" you know, six weeks, eight weeks later in their status. So we had a list of 20 patients. And now the question was exactly the question you raised. Okay, how am I going to examine them, see them in their home? And I, I looked at, okay, well, what's the most common technology in the home? The TV. Only one problem. <laughs> 1993, there was no fiber in the ground. It was coaxial cable. Right. It was one. It was one way. Yeah. <laughs> I got a call. True story. Got a call from the local president of the cable company. It was <laughs> then called Jones Intercable. They've subsequently been bought. I remember them. Yeah. And um, he said we would like to be part of your experiment. Um, and I said. Naively, well, why would you want to do that? He said, well, Jay, think about this. If this works, we can now charge the patient like we charge them for the movie channel, $10 a month. We'll charge them $10 a month for the health channel. <laughs> I said, okay, that sounds good. But how are you going to give me two-way interactivity? He said, there's a way to do that. And the way, very simple, he said, is... You add a, um, you take it through the message through an Ethernet bridge, and you add a reverse amplifier, and we'll do that in the homes of your 20 patients, and see if it works. He said, "There's only one problem." I said, "What's that?" He said, "They'll all be on a party line." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "So if one person is using it, if another person has an emergency, they won't be able to come on." Wow. I said, well, look, the likelihood of 20 patients all getting sick at the same time is unlikely. Let's do it. So we did it. I called the system the electronic house call. That was the first system that ever went into the home. And the minute we did it, it totally opened our eyes to the fact that the best exam room is where the patient lives, not where the doctor works. And what did we use is there? We used their home TV. And when we wanted to see them, they would activate the system. So there was total privacy. We couldn't get into their living room TV. They had to activate the system. And we called it the electronic house call. And that for me anyway, changed the same thoughts I always had as you, you have had, Dr. Lim, that as well. I need to see the patient in my office with all my equipment. I was now seeing my status as Maticus patient constantly being readmitted um, to the hospital who is sitting at home telling me her history with a cat on her lap. <laughs> And her husband, fascinated by this whole thing, standing at the kitchen door 
with a cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> My patient is living in an explosive environment. <laughs> I never realized that. And something I'm sure you'll appreciate in the United States, probably 20% of our patients who we have diagnosed with hypertension and we have put on treatment have what's called white coat hypertension. White coat, yeah. Yeah. Right. White yeah. coat hypertension. Probably the same, around the same statistics in Malaysia as well. Yeah. I started to see these patients at home and I noticed a number of them were normotensive at home. I said, oh my God. That's my white coat hypertensive patient. <laughs> and now, as you know, the most recent data has shown something we never knew before. There's the complete opposite end of the pendulum. Those people who are relaxed in the doctor's office, who when we take their blood pressure, their blood pressure is normal. We don't treat them. They go to work. They're hypertensive. And their morbidity and mortality has been found to be worse than any of the hypertensive population that we treat because we're not treating them. We didn't even know they were hypertensive. This is some sort of like a yeah. reverse, reverse white coat hypertension. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now we've got the capability to examine our patient in their exam room, not in ours. And since we now have all the technology to do the physical exam, and please don't anybody tell me, oh, I have to put my hand on the belly because this is the most um, unreliable, worst, worst instrument in the world. Unreliable. Yeah. Yeah. Totally unreliable. Um, I now have the capability. You know, there is now a um, an ultrasound um, app. I now have everything I need to be a good physician to do a good physical exam when my patient is not in my office. Um, so with the burgeoning of the technology sector and the marrying of the physician with this, we've got the capability to see our patients examine our patients wherever our patient is. It, it's, um, it's interesting because you've been talking about taking care of the patient where they live. And you've been saying that probably for a very long time, but it feels like it's only been like the last five or 10 years that people are widely talking about that concept. Well, <laughs> blame it or praise it on COVID. Okay. I mean, um, it caused um, the need for the patient to be seen. How am I going to see them if they can't come into my office? The real mindset change was not as much in the patient as it was in us, in the physician mm -hmm. population group. If I can't see my patient in my office, what am I going to do? I need to evaluate them. And, oh, wow, I now have the technology to do that. Of course, when we did it, <laughs> we, 
we had to be a little bit inventive about the technology. Today, it's off the shelf. Right. Um, everybody uses it. And uh, and I, I hope you won't mind my saying this, Dr. Lim, but physicians your age, um, this is this is bread and butter yep. to you. Physicians yep. my age, as we were growing up, this was foreign yep, uh, sure. to us. Mm -hmm. um, and now, as other industries start getting into healthcare in the home, um, for our children, uh, my grandchildren, well, gee, you, you mean you never did this? <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. And, and, and we're we also seeing a lot of trend, like, like, like what you mentioned just now, like the trend of the more senior physicians kind of like trying to suppress the, the usage of this technology among the younger ones. The younger ones are still considered renegades, you know, when it comes to practicing telemedicine. And there's still a cultural gap there that we are trying to bridge in the, in the Malaysian context. But what I'm observing now in Malaysia, and maybe this would be an opportunity for, for, for me to link you up with maybe the Malaysian Medical Association or something like that, or one of the authoritative bodies, to kind of like share your experience. Because what we're seeing right now is we still lack um, all this hardware technology here. And even the telemedicine companies in Malaysia are mostly still at startup phases and um, they're not really profitable and they're still struggling with their finances to, to, to kind of like, you know, continue to survive. And I, I really hope that, you know, sometime in the near future, this, this could be overcome. And, and uh, don't maybe feel, yeah, don't, don't feel badly about Malaysia. Um, mm -hmm. I was a guest of the South Korean government, um, must be about 12 years ago. Now, and the South Korean government wanted to introduce telemedicine into South Korea. Guess who didn't want it? The doctors. South, South Korean physicians. Yeah. yeah. Right. So oh um, all we have to do is live a couple of hundred years and all of this will eventually happen. <laughs> so so I, I'm curious putting my entrepreneur cap on uh, what sort of the state of the telemedicine industry? I mean, how did they, they obviously did pretty well during the pandemic. Do you see that trend continuing or have, has telemedicine sort of dropped off as the pandemic has slowed? What, what are you seeing out there? Well, it's now sort of, um, you know, it's like, it's like the large wave um, that as it's coming to the shore, um, it suddenly gets smaller and smaller, um, but it's not disappearing. Right. Um, and the most important thing is, you know, we saw a huge bump um, in, its, uh, in its use because there was nothing else to use. Right. Um, and now it is, it is um, a part of the system, um, but it's not as um, dramatic, obviously, as it was. Uh, I'm trying to cook up uh, the next virus. Um, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, for a long time, even though my professor was the one who coined the word telemedicine, um, I've been trying for years to say it's just medicine. Um, just call it medicine. Um, it used to be before telemedicine. Um, when I grew up, um, the doctor, my mother called the doctor when I was sick. 
on the phone. Right. We never called that telemedicine, yet Teladoc, one of the largest commercial telemedicine uh, companies in the world, Teladoc, um, probably 90% of their consultations are simply the telephone. Really? Why in the, why in the world are we calling it telemedicine? It's medicine. That's wow. all it is. And it also brings us, and I apologize for this, but it really brings us to the most important thing I'd like to say. Sure. Telemedicine is as good or as bad as the up-to-dateness of the physician sending the message. Hmm. If the message that I give to my patient is out of date, and I tell them to take this medication when in fact it's been shown that Y medication is much better than X medication, um, what good is telemedicine? Telemedicine is dangerous to your health. Everybody forgets that it is the message that is important. I don't care how you give it. You can send smoke signals like the Indians did. You can shout it at the top of a mountain. Okay. You could use a telephone. You could use an audio video Zoom meeting. Um, if I'm telling you the wrong thing, it doesn't make it any better that I'm doing it over this wonderful technology. It's still the wrong message. And that's why I have pleaded for years that we have got to match the technology, the telecommunications, which is all that telemedicine is, to the message. And we have to incorporate AI into the medical space. None of us individually can keep up to date. That's right. good and bad. The bad is obvious. The good is that there is so much new tech, new um, information. In information. Yeah. And innovation coming out from labs around the world that we individually can't keep up to date. AI will bring collective expertise to the bedside. We need to, I'm saying this in a nice way, get rid of the single expert at the bedside to collective expertise. At the wow. Bedside. Wow. That's wow. really interesting. Yeah. Collective expertise, it sounds like uh, China. <laughs> we, won't uh, no, we won't go there. We won't, we won't go there. Um, just curious. I'm, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but what are some, can you give some examples of how AI might help in this context? Well, it'll bring, it'll bring the most important information. For instance, I'll, I'll give you a classic uh, example. Um, there are uh, there is this medication that we have developed um, for uh, diabetics, particularly type two diabetics, sodium glucose transport inhibitors. Okay, and we've been using it on our patients with diabetes now for a number of years. 
Well, I wonder how many cardiologists now know that one of the most effective therapies for cardiac failure is this sodium glucose transport inhibitors. And it is now considered to be one of the primary drugs to treat, regardless of whether they have diabetes, patient with cardiac failure. I'll bet you most, most primary care physicians don't know that. The cardiologists are just learning it. That's, that's just one of thousands right. of examples. Um, how many people know that multiple sclerosis uh, is probably caused by EB virus? I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The I new mean, information is coming out so fast nowadays. Right. And I actually see for tomorrow a system, I actually call it, for lack of a better term, I call it Hippocrates, <laughs> um, um, a system, an electronic system that is constantly interrogating every patient's electronic medical record in real time and comparing it with the world's expert AI system that is constantly being kept up to date and flagging the physician with a green, orange, red flag indicating that the present medication, let's use medication um, as the example, rather than you're, you're doing the wrong radiological exam. Um, you're using the wrong medication in this oncologic. Um, Problem. The latest information is X, Y, and Z. You're using A, B, and C. That's 10 years ago. And, and why am I saying that? There is data long been published many, many years ago showing that a medical student 10 years out from medical school is still prescribing the same medications that he or she gave when they graduated medical school, even though there are better medications wow. today. Just one example of the problem um, that exists and the technology that we have available to solve uh, the problem. Wow, wow. So so basically with, with the aid of data and efficient data collection and also the, the technology, you know, we can really put together very personalized, very precise way of treating people and very updated way of treating people as well. And I think this is sorely lacking in, in most medical practices around the world. And really, I, I think it, it even goes back to medical school. I think medical schools and engineering schools need to have some type of crossover. Yeah. Crossovers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Exactly. We're coming to the top of the hour now, and uh, I, I would just like to ask this question uh, to Dr. Sanders before we, we let you go. Um, you know, guys, I, I understand we've been talking about the physician's responsibilities to kind of propagate or advocate uh, telemedicine practices uh, in, 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 their, in their sphere of influence. But also, of course, there's the other component of, um, of the, the patients as well, right? Uh, what would you suggest, like, how would you... What advice would you give to telemedicine startups or even authorities 
to kind of educate these uh, people or, or motivate them towards, uh, you know, exploring the usage of telemedicine. Would you have any, um, what's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I use a parallel. Um, and I, I don't know how applicable, but I suspect it's totally applicable in Malaysia. Um, I say to people, um, look at telemedicine um, and AI as you do to Amazon and the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. Um, you used to just have have to go to the shopping mall to buy something. Today, you can go on Amazon. Um, by the way, um, you can either go to the movie theater or you can get Netflix. Right. Or you could go to your bank or you could have online banking. Or you can go to the restaurant or I don't know if it's you have it in Malaysia, but here we can call Grubhub and have yeah. them, you know, send the food to us. Right. I'm not getting rid of anything. I'm just adding a level of convenience um, as to um, your ability to buy something, um, to do your banking, um, to get your entertainment, to get your to get your health care. Um, nothing more complex. Um, and with respect to AI, I've already suggested, and I'll give you this example. Um, I've suggested to an Amazon care. Um, I won't give you the name of the head of Amazon care. I'm not sure she would necessarily want me to, but I said, look, take Alexa, um, and incorporate the patient's electronic medical records. Into mm-hmm. Alexa at home. And now when Mrs. Jones um, says, please buy X, Y, and Z food at this supermarket, Alexa knows that Mrs. Jones has type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z food is not the best food for her. Right. So what is what does Alexa suggest? Mrs. Jones, why don't you buy A, B, and C food? And We'll send it to you from Whole Foods. Now, why mm. do I say Whole Foods? Because Amazon owns yeah. Whole Foods. Right. Yeah. And by the way, we'll deliver it and we'll charge you less. Oh, huh. and by the way, Mrs. Jones, we know the medications you stand in line in to get every month at CVS Pharmacy. Instead of doing that, we'll send you the same medications from PillPack which Amazon owns, right? Okay, and we'll send it to you and we'll charge you less. Now, what is the motivating factor for Mrs. Jones to do exactly what Alexa suggests, which is all the right thing? I'll charge you less. Yeah. 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 And, and the insurance companies will be happier as well. 1,000%. <laughs> wow, that's a great example. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and wow, what a bombshell. And I think on top of that, I think it, it's, it's coming to the top of the, we, we already uh, have hit the you know, one hour mark and um, really appreciate your time, Dr. Uh, Dr. Sanders, for, for sharing your experience. It's truly had, it, I, I would think, Andrew, if you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think this would be one of the most meaningful podcast episodes we have done. And we have learned so much in sh- such a short hour. And um, 
we, we, we would definitely would love to, to have you back sometime in the future to, to talk about updates and what's going on in the US because I think there are so many things that are going on in the US that is uh, not, we are not caring so much about it, uh, you know, and, and I think it would really be an eye-opener for, uh, you know, uh, developing countries like Malaysia to, to kind of follow the footsteps and to learn uh, from the experiences of what's going on in the US. Well, uh, don't, um, don't minimize Malaysia's importance. Your former multimedia um, platform, multimedia, uh, I'm blocking on the full name, um, was an inspiration to me um, in terms of what you, were, what you were doing from a technological uh, standpoint. So we're all in this uh, together. Um, we can all communicate our ignorance uh, and our naivete. And probably um, the best way for me to end my comments is to say the best way uh, to look at the future is to look in the past. Right. Thank wow. you. Really appreciate uh, you doing this for us. It's been a, an amazing discussion and it was great to see you again, too. Great to see you again, Andrew. And yeah. uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, sure. it's definitely our pleasure. And on that note, uh, thank you once again, uh, Dr. Sanders, for sharing your experience and your expertise. And for those uh, listening towards the end, I'm sure you have had a wonderful eye-opening session as well. Do check us out. We are available on all major podcast platforms like uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we are all, And this episode is also going to be available on video on YouTube as well. Um, Dr. Sanders, if, if anyone is uh, is trying to reach you, is there any way to reach you? Do you have a Twitter or a, a email or website that people can come to you and, and uh, communicate with you if they want to? Well, I stay very stealthy. Okay. My, I, I'm happy to share my email. It's just the initial J, Sanders, S-A-N-D-E-R-S, at T-G-T-G, like Tom George, Tom George, Com. All right, and uh, we will we will put that email into the uh, descri episode description link as well, uh, episode description as well. So uh, anyone is interested to contact you, especially I, I I can sense because I know many of the startup founders, telemedicine startup founders in Malaysia. I can sense that many of them pr would probably want to drop you an email uh, to 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 get in touch with you to get your advice on how to advance further, advance telemedicine further in Malaysia. So thank you once again, Dr. Sanders, um, for being with us. Um, wish you well. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast.